Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith, mental health, and how the church can bridge the gap between them. Today, we're going to be talking about compassion, how we can share it to other people, but also how we can Hello, be Hello, everyone, to and welcome back to another Here episode hosts, of the Not Alone McCord, podcast, Evan where DeYoung we're discussing and faith and mental health. We are three people that have been profoundly shaped by Atlanta traffic, and we are now ready to... <laughs> True words I've ever we been spoken. <laughs> We're now ready to decompress in front of all of you. If you've never sat in traffic through Atlanta, you are missing out. Uh, so we are really excited to be talking a little bit about self-compassion this week. But before we do, I would love for my wonderful co-hosts to introduce themselves a little bit. Lindsay, kick us off. Hey, everybody. It's Lindsay Geist, a pastor in the United Methodist Church, as well as a licensed clinical social worker. I have worked with churches and congregations and nonprofits over the years, helping with crisis intervention, mental health training, and uh, navigating better conversations with one another. I'm Michael McCord, and I am a ordained person in the United Methodist Church, and I've worked with college students, spent my whole life working with college students, and I'm dedicated to helping people um, discover and love themselves in a way that uh, helps them to love other people well. And I am Evan. Uh, they found me in a box on the doorstep, and they said, he doesn't stop talking. We should do a podcast. So we are really excited. <laughs> this we're doing self-compassion. It's a good, it's a good intro. So are we using self-deprecation? That's an example. As a we're going to talk about how that is not self-compassion today. See? Yes. Okay, that's Evan. exactly it. What it's do you want? <laughs> I work in higher education with the Methodist Church. So, Lindsay, self-compassion. Here's the deal. I think I know what it is, but like many things that we talk about, I go into our conversations thinking I kind of know what they are and then quickly learn that I am outside of my uh, range here. So self-compassion, compassion in general, maybe we can define that and then work our way to our kind of prefix word there. I guess it's not technically a prefix because they're not connected. It's two words, right? There's a dash in between. Oh, there is a dash. Could be hi- could be a hyphen. hyphen. Could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So okay, if it's hyphenated, this is not an English. Make- this is not an English lesson. But it, yeah, but if it's hyphenated, does that make it a prefix, Michael? No, I don't think, I don't so, think so. Uh So, mother was an English teacher. Love your mom. Sorry. Let's ask Grammarly. Yes, check Grammarly. Friends, this they're not sponsors, but if you write papers, you should check out Grammarly. I use it on my doctoral uh, work, and it has saved yes, my life. And and if you use it, then <laughs> when you have coworkers who write things and you go to proofread together, you can ask them every single time, have you heard of Grammarly? <laughs> and it makes your coworkers question <laughs> if they can write at all. <laughs> okay, getting that back to happened. the word compassion. Let's talk so about Talk to us compassion. about compassion, Lindsay. It, uh, if you start looking at the Latin root word of it, which I mean, every good word study should start back That's with Latin, I right? I start every, everything I think about, I go back Webster's to my Latin. Webster's Latin Dictionary Tell us what it says. says. Compassion means to suffer with. 
And so that's something important for us to remember that in, in a lot of ways to have compassion, we have to notice that other people are suffering and to be present with them in that suffering. Mm-hmm. Michael, you look puzzled. And you've already blown my mind. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's, it, I suppose I was running off sort of a colloquial definition of it, just thinking of kindness, but I, I love the rootedness in, in the being with, and that's a big part of my theology. And that's a big part of my, my uh, practice of empathy is this idea of being with people. So I, so I really like that. That's a good way to start. So what does that look like for for you, Lindsay? Like when, what does compassion as a whole like? look like? Yeah. This, this being with, like, joining in. So I had, just like y'all, I had a lot of thoughts about what compassion and self-compassion are. And I always do a lot of research to make sure that I better understand the topic and don't just go on what I always think it might mean. Uh, and I loved reading that compassion means being moved by others that are suffering. Uh, not just noticing it, you first notice, then you're moved by it, and then you have this desire to help in some way. And that might be through understanding or kindness, being present, listening. Uh, I often describe in my counseling practice as kind of sitting in the trenches with somebody, Mm. not yelling down to them, but climbing in and sitting there together. And so for me, compassion means so much about how are we with one another going to climb into whatever trench that person is in uh, and sit and be present with them. So are we not like actually being compassionate if we don't somewhat move through those kind of steps? I know that's probably not totally linear every time that we show compassion, but it seems like there is more of a process there that if we don't get like down into it, understand and kind of move through it, like a lot of the times it's like, Oh, I just want to show compassion, but we just say it because we feel like it's what we're supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, Oh yeah, I I'm a Christian. So I have to be compassionate, but I th- that kind of disconnect that can happen between those action steps and then actually doing what we're saying or thinking that we're doing seems like something that, uh, now that I'm looking back on my life and when I thought I was being compassionate, I'm like, there might be some notes that I can learn for the future here. I think sometimes we get confused about doing nice gestures for other people and calling it compassion. Uh, That we kind of, again, we as Christians really struggle with this understanding of works. And so we like to do things Uh, all the time to show our Mm -hmm. faith, which we should. um, But sometimes we do them for the wrong reasons. So Mm -hmm. compassion, instead of being present with the person, let's kind of throw stuff at the person and still stand farther away right? uh, than being present with them. Yeah, that makes sense to me because I've always, it, it has always felt kind of icky to me. I think icky would be the clinical term uh, that sometimes the way that we serve people, it seems like we're just trying to like do a breadcrumb trail to like trap people into meeting Jesus. Does that make sense? 
Like it doesn't feel like actual compassion. Sometimes it just feels like I'm going to do this for you because God loves you. So I'm going to serve you in this way. And it like, I know that the heart isn't manipulative, but to me, because it would push against like individual liberty and that someone's ability to make a decision themselves, like it feel it can feel manipulative, which feels icky to me. And so this idea of like true compassion being the thing that then shapes our actions rather than our actions being just compassionate, like there's a compassionate action. And then there's the idea of actually showing compassion. Uh, and so those two things seem kind of interconnected. And then like that would help me kind of structure that in my own mind to just really, I don't know, think and evaluate what exactly and why exactly I'm doing what I'm doing. Compassion involves listening as well. And instead of just assuming what's happening with the person, but actually listening to their experience and how they would define their suffering and not just putting that label on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, okay. So I feel like we've got a little bit of a better understanding of what compassion is. And I, I, I think anytime we look at a concept like that and kind of zoom in on it and reflect, it's really good. But what we're talking about this week now too is self-compassion, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> now that I now that I, I have to reframe and rethink a little bit about what I think about what compassion is just in general, <laughs> now we have to add this self in front of it and this hyphen. What does that mean? It, it, self-compassion is all of that turned inward. So noticing your own suffering, your own negative thought patterns or thoughts towards yourself. Uh, it's naming this moment of suffering and it's helping you move towards some form of action in all of that. So self-compassion is really not much different than compassion, but focused inward. We aren't usually really kind to ourselves. It's a lot easier to be kind to other people. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess I've been, sorry, I've been a little MIA there because I was uh, going down this rabbit hole about this compassion and where where I see it in scripture um, and just thinking of the story. I think what Jeremy was, it was the story of Bartimaeus, um, who is a blind beggar on the side of the road in Jericho just before Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. And, and there's this, it describes this large crowd gathering and uh, there's lots of noise and Jesus is moving. And, and in Mark's gospel, it's, it's a very quick movement um, towards Jerusalem. And there's a, there's this one verse where it's where Jesus hears Bartimaeus's cry over the crowd of people. He hears the voice of the blind beggar on the side of the road and he stops. It says, um, which is a big movement. Like in, in, if you think about Mark's gospel as it moves, it is constantly going from one place to another, but, but, but Jesus stops, hears 
this the the cry of the poor blind beggar on the side of the road and in matthew's gospel it uses the word compassion um shows compassion of, uh, or is moved with compassion um and and heals his blindness mm. and and so i was just was i was going down this sort of rabbit trail about that in light of where we are this week um I know this is a little bit of a, a, a pivot. I'll get I'll come back to the self compassion piece, but is that we have we are in the midst of uh, national protests where there are loud, loud people um, gathering who who are upset, who are angry about the way the system is and where they're not being heard. Um, and it just struck me about the power of compassion. And all of where we are right now is to hear people's voices, mm -hmm. to hear them, to actually to stop what we're doing and hear them. Um, and that that has really helped me, Lindsay, just sitting here thinking about the word compassion and how you sort of opened that for me today and where I'm sitting um, in reality today right now and 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 the, and the voices that are not being heard right now or the voices that are being dismissed right now or the voices that are being who, who are being harmed right now uh, because of our lack of compassion just to hear them um and that that leads me to talk about self-compassion too is that i think the same what is happening in the streets of our country are happening inside of our hearts and our minds right now i think that, that there's so much noise in our brains, there's so much noise in our inner thoughts that we can't show compassion to ourselves. We can't hear ourselves for all the noise. And so this idea of self-compassion might be then about hearing that the cry that's inside of us the, the, the blind beggar who is on the side of the road, who's being drowned out by all the, the words that we say about ourselves, about how we're not enough. And that's clouding the reality of who we really are and what we really need. Because we say all sorts of things to ourselves that we would never say to other people. I mean, so many ugly hostile things to ourselves, uh, negative, judgmental, um, that it's amazing how challenging it is to be compassionate to yourself. Um, just when we think we're probably starting to get better being compassionate to other people, uh, we're probably uh, still struggling with that towards ourselves. Because you're right, Michael, it is really noisy in our heads. Um, and it's easier, I think, to fall into those judgment, judgmental patterns of, uh, and criticism of our own selves. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the time too, we don't even recognize self-criticism as something that we should really think more about why and what we do or something that's detrimental to us. I think for a lot of us, it's been like a guiding voice that you have to be hard on yourself because that's how you accomplish things. That's how you move forward. That's how you grow is that you, the, like the essence of discipline is somehow connected to self-criticism. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a really challenging mindset that 
it, I think it's exhausting internally. Uh, and so when you talk about this noisy inner voice, um, that's something that I think a lot of us can really relate to. Self-compassion is all about kindness towards ourselves. And we feel, uh, myself included, um, and my guess is is that y'all might have felt this way before, is that if we show any extensive kindness towards ourselves and give ourselves a little bit of slack, um, or as we use it inside the church walls, we often say giving ourselves a little bit of grace, uh, it can feel like we're making excuses for ourselves or encouraging some form of self-pity along the way uh, that we are making excuses um, when we're being kind that we didn't like live up to something or weren't as good at something. Uh, we start beating ourselves up and feel like, no, I better be held to a higher standard mm-hmm. than that. Yeah. I think so much um, we were talking before the show a little bit about this. And I think so much of this, lies in like the way we see the world too or way the world sees us it kind of all intermixed but this idea particularly of protestantism in america is based on some some form of sort of work ethic that that we earn um that god's love is is a direct response to uh, the god's love for us is a direct response of how hard we work at our faith it's are you getting up and you spending time in the book are you praying on a regular basis are you which are all right that's the that's the damage of all this is that they're good things right reading scripture is a good thing praying is a good thing but when you start to believe that your self-worth and that that god's love for you is based on how hard you read how long you read how often you read then it becomes this sort of destructive force and i think that's the same uh same idea that seeps into our own uh, way we see ourselves mm-hmm. is that, um, for example, eating well and exercise and drinking water and, and, and doing good things for our brains, those are all helpful things. But when they become our preoccupation mm-hmm. and a, a tool in which we punish ourselves with, then they become these internal mantras of not being good enough because we haven't worked hard enough. We haven't sacrificed enough. We haven't, we don't physically hurt enough to be loved because that love is based on how much we do. This understanding of uh, self-compassion has, uh, is based out of a lot of research done by uh, professor and researcher, Kristen Neff. And you can go check out all of her stuff at self-compassion. I think it's .com. I'll look Um, it up. You keep talking. Okay. Um, I'm like, I don't want to quote it wrong. Uh, But all of her research is based on the Buddhist model and understanding of loving kindness. How can we express more loving kindness towards ourselves? And she has kind of a basic three-part model of when thoughts, your thoughts drift towards negative or hostile Uh, places, make sure you're noticing the pattern of what words do you normally say to yourself? What starts happening? Uh, Then naming the moment of suffering um, and recognizing that everybody has difficulties 
and mm-hmm. then uh, moving these thoughts towards compassion or towards kindness mm-hmm. uh, through action and circumstances. Uh, it's something that uh, I really respect a lot of the Buddhist tradition of this understanding of loving kindness, of how do we care for ourselves well um, and not in a martyrdom status that I think that we uh, as American Protestants often fall into uh, this martyrdom or if I'm not disciplined enough, then I'm Mm -hmm. not working hard enough. Uh, What does it look like to flip that on its head and start talking about it as loving kindness towards Mm. ourselves? Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, the website is self-compassion.org. Dot org. Okay. Thank you. So you got it there. And that's, there's so many things in that, that are, that are really interesting. I am deconstructing a lot of things in my head right now in order to, to I mean, on that. video, <laughs> I can watch your brain thinking uh, right now, Evan. Yeah. <laughs> Michael would call this a liturgical pause. That's right. That's right. Sometimes you just need that. that sp- well, that's how I spent the first half of this mm-hmm. so far is just like you, you, Lindsay, you kind of opened my eyes up to this, this sort of rabbit trail that I went down. And I think this same push now is, is thinking, I'm thinking, um, I, I watched a episode of Naked and Afraid last night. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but they drop people into the wilderness willingly. These people, it is, they sign up willingly, for this. Willingly. It is such an addicting show. I oh, don't yeah. want to watch it, but I get sucked in every time. It yeah. is. It is. And and uh, uh, you can you can tell me later how bad of a parent I am by by text message or, or uh, Instagram <laughs> message or something. But my kids watched it with me it's for censored. a little bit uh, this morning. And uh, and I asked them. I said, "Would you would you watch me if I went on this? You know?" And they're like, uh, "No." <laughs> but um, again, it's anyway, censored. It was just I mean, it was. We always yeah. called it naked and a skirt, <laughs> which is the southern right. version. It, it is it is censored. It, it's it is censored. I can't but, wait um, to hear the tie anyway. in. <laughs> yeah, this. So there so I was none. watching this this episode, and there's this this man on there, um, who who is literally killing himself trying they're there in this up. This is this season is in South Africa and, and there it's, it's 115 degrees outside. Is this the extreme and season where it's talk- the 40 days deal? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so he's out there and he's like, he's like, I've got, I've got to, I mean, literally says like, I've got to earn my keep. I've got to do my thing. I've got to build this. I've got to build that. I got to do this. And he's literally He's he's to the point where he's telling his body left foot right foot left foot right foot and and I I just want to say I've been there where I feel like um, I have to earn my keep in this world I have to work hard enough that I leave a footprint in this world and and I and so I'm thinking about this idea of self compassion is is flies in the face of all of that uh, because it, again like it's like um, to use another metaphor, it's the assembly line of American uh, theology too, or American self-worth is that, that we are a, a cog in the wheel, that we're on the assembly line that, and that our worth is how fast we build cars uh, and how hard we work. And so if we were to take time to be kind to ourselves, that means we have to come off the assembly line, which means we're not making money. And capitalism is all about making money. Um, 
and and so what we're at least I'm going to say from my vantage point of working with particularly young men um, is this so much of self worth is built up in what you make, and what you make is built up on how hard you work and you're willing to sacrifice, and and so what you're suggesting us to do is it goes against everything we've been taught we're supposed to do as young white men in America. Mm. Um, and that's hard. So I wonder how we get to a place where we begin a practice of self-compassion. Like how do you move from being a workaholic and pushing and believing yourself to be on some kind of, some kind of assembly line of production to moving towards this idea that, that we should care for ourselves and show compassion. I mean, I think again, the first step is noticing some of our thought patterns. It's it's helpful to start noticing when our first thoughts about ourselves are pretty negative and ugly and chastising and judgmental. Um, and figuring out, okay, this pattern, every time I do something and I feel like I'm not contributing to society or I'm not earning my keep. I automatically start thinking I'm you know you're lazy. What are you doing? Why aren't you playing your part? Nobody's going to want you. Uh, those are common phrases that we as individuals often carry with us. Uh, whether we want to admit it or not. Uh, just as you said Michael, we want to earn our keep and so we start having these ugly phrases in our mind towards ourselves. So the first step is always to notice a pattern. I say that for almost everything in counseling, that uh, we can't ever work on changing things until we notice how they're starting. Mm -hmm. So even paying attention to how do we talk to ourselves? And would you ever talk like that to somebody else? Mm. Would you ever say to somebody else, you are not pulling your weight, stop being lazy, get it together. Um, or nobody's going to want think, just think it <laughs> remind me never to work for you, Evan. Yeah. Um, I'm a tyrant. Would you, would you tell your friend, would you tell your friend, uh, your coworker, your spouse, just work harder, work harder, mm -hmm. you know, you're not earning your keep. No, you're not you, worth you would, it. Yeah, that's right. And, and if we that's heard right. somebody try saying, try saying that to your spouse, at some if point, we heard somebody well, say that out loud, um, I mean, we would turn our head practically all the way around and go, what in the world? Why would you ever say that? Why mm. would you even believe that? And we would probably freak out if we heard that come out of somebody's mouth. Mm -hmm. um, yet we have normalized it inside of our own heads towards ourselves. Okay. And I think, I, but kind of, yes, we would freak out if we heard somebody say it in maybe our circles. But I, I mean, this... I, when you touch on this idea of lazy and the lazy label, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, I, I, I think we're, we might be insulated a little bit in, even so not really uh, in some of the ways and places that we spend a lot of our time at work. And I think this idea of being perceived as lazy or not a hard worker or not someone who's get willing to put in the extra hours is really endemic to our society. Well, let's, yeah, let's be honest. I, I just, let me be completely honest with you. And that is we learn this shameful language as a child mm -hmm. because the majority of our parenting comes from how we experienced parenting. Mm -hmm. And so there is this 
chain of shame. Uh, parenting is is often relegated to making your children feel shameful about something that they did in order to get them to do something you want mm-hmm. them to do. Mm-hmm. And and that's how I was raised. I I, I certainly not not. My, my mom and dad were not particularly shameful people or shaming people. But it's not necessarily in, intentional yeah, of it, being. Yeah. It's I mean, not, it, it's not like, oh, I'm going to shame cultural subtext. It is this, it, it is this, it comes around. But, but I have some very, like, I, I will, uh, I share the story sometimes with, with groups of, uh, particularly kids, um, is I have a body image. Uh, issue like I grew up uh, I've always been um, what my mom described as husky um, big boned we have all kinds of good you know phrases for these kinds of things but I grew up uh, as a bigger kid and my uh, my grandmother took food away from me at the dinner table so that I wouldn't eat anymore uh, my brothers could keep on wow. eating my cousins could but I wasn't allowed to eat uh, my cousins called me thousand pounder um, all through my very early adolescence. So, so here's the thing is like that, that you learn that at that age and when it's there, it's so imprinted in you that then as you grow up, it stays with you. And I, I carry body shame issues with me. I, I, I don't know that I'll, I don't know that you, I have not yet figured a way to get rid of them. They're there. I think you start the first, as, as Lindsay suggested, I think the first thing is to recognize that they're there. And then the sex thing is start, the second thing is to start talking about it because it's the secret of the shame that's so destructive to you. It's not the experience itself by itself, but it's, it's hiding that and, and, and telling yourself over and over again and over since you were six years old, that you're a thousand pounder. Um, and, and so, you know, what happens then fast forward, I become a parent and those experiences are still inside of me and they sometimes mm-hmm. rear their ugly head, you know, in the way I think about my kid's food or my kid's physical activity. And so what happens is if you're not aware that this is happening, if, you're, if you haven't done the work to, to sort of no. think about notice this and talk about it. Yeah, no, notice as, Lin, let's use Lindsay's words, notice the pattern and then talk about it. <laughs> Um, then, then it's, you see how easily you get into just replicating it because that's what you know. I love that. I love that idea that like, just chill out and identify it first, because that in itself to me seems like an act of, of self-compassion. Like just, just relax. You don't, don't even worry about fixing any problem right now. Just kind of figure out what it is and notice a pattern. Don't overreact to one thing or another and, and then do that. And that act of stepping back, I think, is really informative. Uh, so let me give you another little tool. I'll own that. So, so let's say you, you are keeping some kind of record of, and I, this might be a suggestion, that is that start following yourself. And when that negative self-talk happens, it's usually in a moment of high stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other things around that trigger it. So, so take, start taking a log of here's, here's, I got really angry at myself. I started talking bad about myself, all the, I'm not enough statements, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. those are. Um, 
take a little note of what those things that you said were about yourself in your mind and then what's happening around the situation. So that that cataloging of over time will help you identify some 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 common themes that pop up. And then the next stage, uh, there's this methodology of what we call the five whys. Uh, and so if if let's say um, I'm triggered by high stress situations at work and my my response to that is to start self-shaming my body. Let's say that's let's say that's a is the the five steps to that is why was I triggered at work? That's one why. Why why was my go-to response to talk about to think about how my body is not good enough? And then to say, why did I learn to say that my body was not good enough? Where, why did that happen? And so you see, you start to peel back the onion a little bit and you might go to some very important sort of some places in your life, some moments in your life where you really expend some, some hurt. Um, or you start to uncover at least maybe why you're getting triggered so much in these moments of pressure and why you go to, to self shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where, like like Lindsay said at the beginning, compassion is just being there. So so maybe for your first act of compassion for yourself is to ask why and figure out where, to, and then just sit there. Just, just be in that moment for a few seconds, for a few minutes and recognize the hurt that exists there. And that may be the first act of compassion, compassion that you can show yourself. Uh, there, there's some things that I really loved about what you said. And uh, obviously I'm a qualified clinician. So Lindsay should let me uh, make comments. I love hearing everything in these episodes of what you're qualified to do. I have so many things. Of, there's a, well, there's a lot of things in the world that you don't have to have. There's no actual certification to do it for the most part. So like you just say that you are one and then you are one. And it has made me like rethink how I think of some professions and like, like professional <laughs> opinions. Then there's other things that that doesn't matter and people are brilliant and you shouldn't try and do things. Anyways, I, I like the way that you put the like responsibility there intrinsically on recognizing what happens and then what you do with it, because you gave yourself kind of that internal locus of control there. Uh, And in working with students a lot, there, there was a big movement for a while around things that trigger us in college. And what does that look like? And what is our responsibility? And what is the responsibility of professors and the university and those in authority to make sure that we don't experience things that cause triggers within us. And I think that that act of compassion is a really good thing. But what I, what I really struggle with, with that is that it, it, it wasn't empowering. It was, it, it could almost to be seen as like, instead of considerate, like overly coddling. Uh, and I think that that's a common sentiment that I hear from individuals when it comes to understanding the things that will cause us to get tossed into internal turmoil almost uncontrollably, right? There are those things that happen inside of all of us that when it happens, it just pulls up a host of memories and you're just feeling emotions and you're having that physiological response like the back of your neck kind of like stands on end, like in your or the hairs and you're like, you, you know, you your stomach kind of turns over, those things that we can't control. And so when we remove any form or any modicum of responsibility for internal locus of control within that, it has always worried me that that would be, we're putting ourselves in a situation for this to just keep happening because that's just going to shift. What 
frustrates us and moves us, it's going to shift. And we haven't given ourselves the coping mechanisms and the ability to interact with it. But should I think that, Lindsay? That was a lot. Um, should you boil it down to a question at the end again? Is that, that idea of an intrinsic responsibility to be able to interact with things that affect my internal dialogue, should the expectation be that I should be the one to manage that first? And then from then I can have conversations and put myself in different situations where I don't get triggered. Because on campus, there was a big and a lot of conversations years ago around tr like triggers and so that we, we shouldn't talk about things that trigger people. Well, I think that it's kind of a both and I don't want as a clinician to say it's one way or the other. Um, I do think that communities and campuses uh, should be more knowledgeable about how they impact people. Mm -hmm. um, we should be better informed about what how things that we say or do can trigger people and when they are incredibly harmful. There are some that are really obvious that uh, organizations should learn about uh, to eliminate those things. But I do think that the onus shouldn't only be put on the outside entity. Uh, we too can do our own work of figuring out what's triggering us um, we get these negative self-talk patterns, uh, both from the outside and uh, it's morphed somewhere inside of us. It's gotten distorted along the way, usually. So I don't think that you can only do one way or the other. You have more control right. over your internal changes than you do of the external. But if you are a part of a larger group organization, uh, campus, etc. I do think that you should be thinking at the same time about mm. your impact on the greater whole. Mm. So it's kind of a both and answer. Right. There's no one way or the other. That sounds very compassionate. <laughs> so my, uh, we've been trying to teach my daughter that uh, she has the ability to control her emotions or to, to use her emotions and good that her emotions shouldn't be scared of them, but they're, they're good things. You just got to learn how to use them in ways that are healthy. Um, and so she's trying to explain this to her friend and she said, I'm you're in control of yourself. You're the boss of yourself is how she explained the, you know, my high level, you know, description of, you know, <laughs> you know, you know it sums down so to that. Great. Well, Austin overheard that. Austin overheard Austin that. Austin is your son. He's been telling me that he, my son. Yes. He's who's five he's been telling me that he's the boss of himself. That's what Ellie taught him is that he's the boss of himself. You're like, there's a nuance to and that. So, You're not totally the boss of yourself. Then, right. <laughs> you right. gave your children and agency, so I think the biggest I, mistake it, you could make. It, it, that's right. That, yeah. Don't, don't let your children believe they have control of anything. You're a dictator. No. Um, but I think the same thing is yes. So yes, Austin is in control of himself. He is the boss of himself. He can control his actions and his, thoughts he can work on those he's five so he's got he's got a long way to go to figure that out i'm 40 i still have a long way to go figure that out at the same time he is also not able to be completely the boss of himself and i think that's where all of us are that that we live in this thing called community and and for whatever reason we were sort of designed to live in community 
that we don't do well in isolation, that we need each other. And so, yes, in part, we are in control of ourselves and we ought to take on that agency that, yeah, I, I, if, if, I am, if I am replicating negative self-talk all the time, let me find some ways to show some self-compassion by first maybe just keeping track mm-hmm. of it, then asking about it. But I may not be able to do that by myself. Uh, in fact, I cannot, I cannot be fully self-compassionate by myself. I need other people to live in community with where I practice compassion with others that in, that also enlightens how I practice compassion with myself. It's a relationship. Um, and, and I think what we would say in this episode is that we probably spend a lot of time demonstrating compassion towards other people. Hopefully, but we don't spend the same, the same time, not all. Yes. Yeah. I, but we don't spend the same kind of time sharing compassion with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's a push on that too. Just your side comment there, Evan, um, right now in the middle of these, these riots and, and these uh, horrific racist, racially motivated actions is that those people who are instigating that kind of violence and hatred um, are, are doing so out of a place of extreme harm. They've been harmed. They've experienced violence in their life most likely. And they probably have very little self-compassion, if any at all. And so they they have an inability to show compassion towards others because they probably have never experienced it themselves. And so that's the thing is that to, to, to this all of this is wrapped up into the same fabric of community and neighborhoods and, and violence and and joy and great things and really horrible, sad things um, is our ability to learn how to love ourselves so that we are enabled to love others. And because we love others, we're able to love ourselves. Mm-hmm. And all of that's made possible, I might argue, as, as a Christian, um, is that God's love for us is what enables mm-hmm. us to do that with each other and with ourselves. So, so here's my question. The emphasis on self-compassion, especially in the context of parenting and being the boss of yourself and making sure that we don't, in an attempt to grow discipline and inspire work ethic, those kind of things, make sure that we don't lose the ability to have self-compassion on the road to that. How do we there's not a universal way, but what, like, what does it look like to foster discipline and teach work ethic while at the same time holding the tension of self-compassion, not even really tension, but the balance of self-compassion and healthy rhythms of thought and life with, with work and resting. How do we model that? How do we teach that in our, our families, in our circles? It's, it's almost as if someone could have written like a prescription for like a day of rest. <laughs> like, like Sabbath? Like if someone had if someone had said, you know what, let's all work hard and then let's all rest hard so that we can work hard again and so that we can be together and we can I be I think healthy. I've read that book before. It, did God write about that? Well, technically, 
Uh, God's people did. Um, <laughs> and therefore, yes, God did, right? Um, but yeah, so like, I think that's the, the beauty of it is like, so that's, that's the strangeness of it all. It's like we, we humans, we love to take the Bible and use it for what works for our frame mm-hmm. of reference. And for American Protestant Christians, uh, of which I can speak of, I, there are other traditions and other worlds and other parts of the world who might say this is true for them, but I live in that. And we will choose certain passages. We love Paul because Paul really works hard. Um, and But we forget these other things. Um, and one of those is the idea of Sabbath, the idea of of rest and the importance of rest. Um, and I think that's a perhaps a part of the Bible that we could just live into. Mm. Um, you know, it's like, a, well, yeah, I, anyway, I want to break I, that. I think that, I think that's something that might, challenge I want to break that down a little bit too, because I think that we interpret what rest is in scripture in a really interesting way. Cause I think that we think it's like work yourself to the bone for six days and then crash for one day. And I think what's actually modeled is, is more of like a rhythm of rest and a pattern of rest that allows us to be sustainable, not necessarily literally work till you don't have skin on your hands anymore for six days straight and can barely stand and are just thinking, I have to do this. I have to do this until I make it just what we would say is Sunday, the day of rest and then do it. And I think it's a little less literal than that actual structure, because I think that within each day, we're supposed to have that microcosm of what it looks like to have a rhythm of rest, not just, yes, structure your days, but I have a lot of folks that I've talked to and a lot of parents that I've talked to over the years who have followed that literal, almost like literal seven day creation model for their families and for their students. And it results in, has resulted in a lot of resentment. And so I think it that modeling of what it looks like to hold like self-compassion in tandem isn't just a six day sprint and then a day of rest. You know what I mean? And I, I want to make sure that I, if that's what you're saying, great. I, I think you're. I think you're really onto something because again, you you bring out the sort of literalism and the way we read it, and in paired with the highly structured way we see time mm-hmm. uh, as as contemporaries. I mean, the the idea of time for us is broken down into milliseconds and calendars and everything every moment of our life is accounted for you know in these where where time is not nearly as as clearly understood when the scripture is written right in in and remember too the scripture is an oral tradition first so so people are telling this to their to their ancestors over and over and over um to remind them about how god created and called us to rest so yes i think the you're right. I think the scripture, uh, in terms of 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 creation and Sabbath, is a rhythm of life that is captured in a day, mm-hmm. uh, is is captured in a moment, that's captured in a week, that's captured in a month, that's captured. You know, like like so these cycles of rhythm that that we we do work, we 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 tend to the world, 
and we do the things we've been called to do, but we also must retreat mm-hmm. from all of that to recenter ourselves uh, so that we can go back out and be true to who we are. Um, what I appreciate about self-compassion and what you just talked about as rhythms is so much of it is about being a process mm-hmm. that it's not perfect. It's something we're always working on to try to find uh, better rhythms and mm-hmm find better ways to be caring for ourselves, both in our words and our actions towards ourselves. Mm. Yeah. And I think the rest part of the creation story is essential because this idea that like we have to do things to intentionally pull away, to have perspective, to understand patterns in themselves is really important for self-compassion too. Because if we don't have the time. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the trenches, like I like and I'm working on stuff and things are piling up and I'm trying to get from one place to the other. And I, I have kind of this like strategic order of operations, like, okay, I got to go to the store on the way home from work and I got to put this food in. And I, there's all these things that we have to balance. I mean, not anymore, but uh, <laughs> we're all at home. There, there's not a notice to the pattern. It's not until I'm able to pull back a little bit and do that recreation, like revisit the creation rhythm. And and this is what I studied in school. We're talking about recreating, recreating this idea that we, when we do things, especially physically with our bodies that don't have the same mental component as work, we gain a better perspective on ourself, our communities, our relationships and our work. So therefore recreation should be essential to our lives means that maybe we shouldn't punish ourselves for doing it. And so it, it, it is this weird tandem intention that I feel like we balance in setting a tone in a culture in our workplace and in our families as well. Uh, and I appreciate uh, everything that you guys have to say about that as well. I, I have another question if anybody has any other thoughts on that. Go for it, Evan. Okay. Oh. I really loved the three parts of we talked about with uh, self-compassion. And I think that Kristen seems like she's really on to something and identifying these kind of practices. We are a podcast on faith and mental health and specifically Christian faith. So when we hear that something is like derived from Buddhist practices and we're using it as something that we want to evaluate, Tell me a little bit about why we're comfortable with that, why we sh- maybe shouldn't be afraid of the, the fact that somebody else has ideas, those kind of things. Because we spent a lot of time, all of us growing up in the South, and if you went into a congregation and led with, here's a Buddhist practice, there's a significant number of people. I mean, when you said it, my mind, I was like, Buddhism bad, Christianity good, like because it's just like broiled inside of us. So I think that there there is some questions that I have around. Okay, what does this look like? Why why is it maybe not so binary in that? Well, I think it comes down to how do we look at humanity and what is valuable and. Uh, understanding some of creation. And so it being uh, derived mostly from a 
Buddhist understanding of loving kindness doesn't take anything away from our faith tradition. It is a tool that we can use that uh, talks about thought patterns and suffering uh, and how and better care. That is not a topic that's exclusive to Christianity. And so Buddhism just in in this loving kindness concept that Dr. Kristen Neff talks about is it's not an idea that's exclusive to Christians. And maybe some other faith traditions even word it better than we do, and we can take some value from that. If we're ever worried about other faith traditions or question uh, if they can bring anything to the table uh, for our own understanding of our faith tradition, go read Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Holy Envy where she explores a number of different faith traditions and what that can do for our own faith tradition along the way. We don't need to be scared of other people's. It's not a competition. Sometimes other people and other faith traditions simply word things better than we do. And why don't we use it as a place to learn and grow? Hmm. I'll just first say that I've spent a lot of time working in um, uh, Muslim countries and Buddhist countries um, and and getting to experience uh, faith traditions from those who practice it on a regular basis. Those who are like, I, the everyday people just like you and me who are practicing their faith and getting to talk about it uh, together. And that radically changes how you view other faiths uh, because you don't, it's it's not about about positioning, about putting yourself up against what you believe, what they believe, and that right and wrong. It's about being in relationship with each other and and sharing uh, about who you are and where your faith comes from, and and who they are, where their faith comes from, and what you what I found is the transcendence of God in the midst of all of it. That God transcends all um, time and space and, 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 and that we have some common threads in our faith traditions. Um, one of those is, is meditation. Centering prayer has been a a historic part of the Christian faith. And we had our own, our own, uh, monks, uh, who lived, um, in isolation and prayer and meditated, uh, all day. That, that is a very much a rich part of our tradition not so much practice in the US, although it's made a it's made a big comeback. And so the idea of meditation um, in the Buddhist tradition is, is very similar practice. Um, and the idea of a mantra that this this word uh, that you might say over loving kindness or phrase loving kindness um, is something you in, in practice of Buddhist meditation uh, is, is helpful for centering your thoughts on the idea of being loving and kind, loving to yourself and kind to yourself so that you might be loving and kind towards mm-hmm. others. It is the same thing we practice in Christianity in centering prayer, where we might choose a phrase that we want to help center ourselves in, love God, love ourselves, love others. Um, we, we, and I think we end up sharing many of those same words. So um, I, I, I understand for people who've not experienced other religions in, in, in meaningful interrelational ways, um, it it can be a scary path, um, but understand that we share many things in common. 
uh, and one of those is meditation. So uh, I don't think you can be, I don't think you should be afraid of loving kindness. Mm. So you tell me that noticing patterns, naming suffering and moving thoughts toward compassion is not exclusive to Buddhism? Not at all. And I shouldn't be all. afraid of it. Not afraid. Yeah, I just think it's important. I think it's important to recognize too, uh, especially given the generally competitive and combative nature of. I mean, there's a it, it, a lot of the times in, in our faith, things are portrayed as like, look at what's at stake. You know, like our souls are at stake here, um, and I think that in, in the name of defending God, uh, we tend to lose ourselves and lose our relationship with God. Um, and it's a challenge that I think that we're always going to have to deal with, um, especially depending on where we're from and the cultures that we come out of. So appreciate uh, all of your thoughts and wisdom. Any other kind of parting words or closing thoughts? I think I'd like just to say that you're not alone and there's nothing wrong with you. Um, if you have not practiced self-compassion, you are you are not alone in that and there's nothing wrong with you. Um, I'm reminded that in Psalm 23, one of my favorite verses, um, he maketh me lie down in green pastures. To me has always served as a reminder that since, since David, God has had to call us back to remember that we need to lay down, that we need to be still. Um, that we need to take in what's in around us and experience because it's beautiful, right? Maketh me lie down in green pastures is that if you're laying down, but you're also in that moment declaring that you're observing that the grass is green and that you're seeing what's around you. And so you're not alone in this fight, this struggle to be self-aware, to be self-compassionate. Self-compassion is a process. And so I think that it's about, uh, being, being patient with yourself, that uh, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to feel uncomfortable if you've mm -hmm. never done it before. Mm -hmm. That it's, it's not a one-time deal either. It is ongoing work that you will do with yourself. I had one last question, Lindsay. <laughs> knew that i'd never get away with that i it Even was such a more. good such a good conclusion but i i i've just i wrote down a question so my question is this and we can trim it around if we want we probably won't uh would be when my like we didn't touch on perfectionism at all and this idea of like internal like dialogue and the internal voice and what we say to ourselves and then needing to be perfect or not being satisfied when things aren't perfect in that situation. It seems like that would be something that we would really need to talk about when we talk about like self-compassion because they seem really interconnected. And in some of our past conversations about it, you've brought them up as being fairly interconnected. And since we didn't talk about it, I, I wanted to give you a chance to comment on it a little bit. Thank you. I think that self-compassion uh, helps us move away from perfectionism. And so the more that we actively work on self-compassion, the more that we can 
uh, challenge our our push and our focus on perfectionism. What's amazing is that the better we are at self-compassion, uh, the more likely anxiety and depression will decrease as well. <laughs> so what this goes to show us is that when we don't put the same pressures on ourselves or these unrealistic expectations, we become healthier. And so self-compassion is a way for us to become healthier. I love it. That's such a, I just, I'm going to make that my alarm in the morning. Like it's just going to go off and it's going to be someone talking about how you need to have self-compassion so you can be healthier instead of some Katy Perry song or whatever that I have right now. So, I mean, what a beautiful thing though. If you start thinking about it as a way to be healthier, um, it makes it so much more palpable for it's, us it, to it, be it, able to yeah. uh, strive for. Totally different. Totally different perspective. I appreciate uh, all the thoughts and experience and conversations and wisdom and uh, look forward to taking us off topic again on our next episode, everybody. <laughs> they're, they're smiling and they're laughing. You can't see it, but I can. <laughs> That's right. You can. I can't right, wait well, for your tangential you questions. <laughs> They're coming at you. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Just want to say thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks to Justin Patton, who produces our podcast and also does the intro music. If you want to collaborate with Justin on a project, you can check him out at airgigs.com. That's Justin Patton at airgigs.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode.